Hey everyone, this is Anthony Grant, and I want to introduce you all to this podcast. It's called Superstar PR, and it's all about entertainment insider chats with Nikki, the founder of the PR agency, Nikki Inc. This podcast chats with some serious entertainers and media insiders, always choosing people who are making a difference in the entertainment world and who have cool stories to share. Happy listening. Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of Superstar PR. So today's guest is kind of a really big deal. She's the co-host and founder. I mean, like it was her idea, Toronto's best show, The Social. When I was on my mat leave, I watched it every day. And my husband said that once our cable didn't work and I got emotional and I was like, but I can't watch The Social. You don't understand. I need to see it. She has a clothing line for kids called Mark. And she has a phenomenal TED Talk, which I really think you should all look up and watch. And some of her other roles, because she's really busy, include co-anchoring CTV's Olympic morning show during the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics and Toronto's annual So Cute Santa Claus Parade. It brings me so much joy to welcome Melissa Grello, and I'd ask you all to clap for her because she rocks. Wow, thank you. Melissa, how are you? I'm great, and thank you so much for asking me to be here. You know what, truly, it's my honor because for me, it's all about the sheroes and the people I admire and the careers I want to put a spotlight on. And I know that as a journalist, you're always talking about what everyone else is doing. But oh my god, like I just read what you're doing. That's that's kind of huge. Like (laughs) when you read it like that, it makes me exhausted too, (laughs) to be honest. But no, we're we're doers. So you just kind of don't stop. You just do. Well, you know, um, I think your story is such a phenomenal one, because you started your career as a teacher. And then you later decided to go back to school to study broadcast journalism. And that takes courage. Can you talk to me about like the moment where you were like, I'm going to jump, I'm doing it? Oh, boy, when I think back at the time of my life, it actually like, I I actually can't believe that I did that. And I say that because I was probably a, a typical, high achieving, brown nosing, uh, always the A plus student from the get. And so when I thought my whole life trajectory was leading to teaching, And then I followed it, pursued that in university, started teaching. You can imagine someone who thinks they know their whole life plan already, what that does to somebody when all of a sudden you are starting to use energy to suppress something that you don't want to entertain because it is petrifying. And that is the feeling of unfulfillment. And when that started to creep up in me, I was like, oh, I just probably blamed it on my boyfriend at the time. Or, you know, I blamed it on other things because that feeling, if anybody's ever been down a path that they know is not fulfilling, but they can't figure it out yet or put words to it or figure out what the alternative is, like I'm talking about those early stages, it's really unsettling and you try your best to actually squash that. And that was me in sort of my early 20s, mid 20s. And uh, my parents, which I did my TEDx talk on being immigrants, and being a firstborn, there's so much expectation that you're carrying through your entire life. And as I was just sort of hitting my stride, at least in their eyes, finally, she's done school, finally, she's got a good government job, she's got good benefits. She's off. This one has launched, right? She's flown the coop. So you have that in your head plus, but wait a second, is this actually what I want to be doing? That's a very scary thing to admit to yourself. So when that started, it actually turned into 
quite honestly, therapy. And I say that honestly, because um, I was actually going through a terrible time in my relationship. And I had started to go to therapy because I thought I, I, you know, majored in psychology in university. And I wasn't ashamed to try to get help in terms of trying to figure out my life. And that was the same time that I decided to leave teaching to start my master's in education. And that was the beginning because what I thought was going to be a break from, you know, the teaching grind to pursue higher education in education, I actually educated myself, if Love I could it. say it like that, Love because it. that was the awakening. And um, with the help of a business coach, he worked on Bay Street. And so ultimately his clientele was mostly Bay Streeters, but he's a psychologist. And we started to talk about career changes and, and perhaps um, entertaining other ideas. And so the long and short of it was after working with him for six months, I dumped my boyfriend and decided to pursue a new career path. I mean, he was, I'll tell you something though. I think I was a real case because he retired. I was his very last patient <laughs> of all time, which tells me something that I was a case and a half for him. But I, I got every ounce of wisdom out of him that I could. And that literally changed the course of my life. And so the biggest part of that, going back to your original question about the courage, it did take courage. I'm very proud of myself because I had to go and sort of plead the case to my parents as to why I was leaving a career that everybody would have wanted, which was security, because that's what an immigrant wants, security for their children. And I was going to a complete unknown, which was not only television, but journalism. And that was to them like, what? What, what is that even? Um, but as the saying goes, and I'll quote my dad here, you know, when you're on the right path, all the angels and saints are behind you. And so <gasps> there it was. And um, my dad's other saying is God helps those who help themselves. And I finally felt for the first time that I wasn't walking the prescribed path of my life, but rather I was getting into the driver's seat for maybe the first time, going through the proverbial quarter life crisis and coming out victorious on the other side. So that was now we're pushing almost 20 years ago. Wow. So recently I've been watching Brene Brown on Courage, mm -hmm. the talk. And I, I wonder how many of us reach that moment where we're, we have to make a pivot, but it's scary for so many people. So I think that's pretty epic because you, I mean, I am a daughter of immigrants and I, I've heard very much what's expected. And I call my parents like the hippie version, but they're still, <laughs> they sound a lot like your parents. And I might Are you first born? I'm the second born. Uh -huh. And I'm into birth order psychology major. So I'll be asking you a few questions too. <laughs> so fascinating. And, you know, um, something that uh, my parents always said to me was, it just shouldn't feel like work. That's a good life. Does it feel like work for you? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, it doesn't feel like work in the sense that I can't tell you that I've ever woken up one day and said, Ugh, I don't want to be doing this. No, it's never since the day that I left teaching and started on this path, it's never felt like work. Is it work? A hundred percent. I'm a hustler and I, I know I'm not always going to be the best at what I do in the room, but I could tell you I will be the hardest worker in the room. And so for that, that's work. There is no shortcut if you are ambitious. And I don't mean that in a competitive sense. I really truly mean that for myself. Like I know what I want to attain for myself. And I don't accept mediocrity for myself. And when I know I'm sort of sludging through the mud, I'm just like, sh I have to actually ask the big question is, should I be even doing this? Like if I'm really forcing myself and the motivation isn't there, 
it's not like, oh, is this what I want? I mean, I mean, you really do have to say when something lights you up, like your belly inside is on fire, that's what should be pushing you. And anytime it's not that, like life's too short. And yes. if it doesn't light me on fire, then I'm like, what am I doing this for? And I really try to use that in as many areas of my life as possible because life is just so much richer yes, and more fun, quite frankly, that way. Absolutely. You know, so I see some of your Instagram posts of how you balance it all. And like, you're so inspiring. I mean, because I just had my baby a few months ago and I was like, congratulations. Thank you. You're in it still. You're in the the depth still, girl. (laughs) God help us all. And I say, but Melissa works out. It's so good. I drink my green juice and I'm like, Melissa had a workout today and one day I'll do it. I'll have the energy in the morning to do the workout because I used to, but now it's like a distant memory, but I, I aspire to Ebbs do that flows again. of life. You are nurturing another life. It's completely understandable. <laughs> yes. Yes. My little Sophie and you have a beautiful daughter, Marquesa. I want to know, because I know that you, from what it looks like, it's such a beautiful relationship. And I love what you say you're going to teach her because all the, all the wisdom you share on the social. Now that I have a daughter, I kind of want to write it down. I'm like, we cannot screw this up. These are such important little minds. Um, a significant lesson that you want to teach Marquesa is? Oh, the, the big one I think these days is really um, to be unapologetically herself. The one thing you can understand this as a woman, and certainly you can understand this now, having a little girl, even though she's still very, very young, um, it's also part of the story of my own clothing line, but it is the idea of when we get to a certain age in our lives as women, and you're able now to start to look back at your younger self as a woman, and how much time and energy you have focused on trying to conform to what other people think you should be or should have been. I really try to draw as much inspiration from wise women who are much older than me because there's a fearlessness that comes with aging as a woman that shouldn't come just because you're older and I don't give a you know what that's my mother right like (laughs) I I admire that and I just feel like it shouldn't wait until you're in midlife to find your stride and your voice and young girls are born with it as are young boys But something happens once society and all of its cultural uh, thrusts and pressures start to fall on kids. And that generally you'll start to see happen when they're sort of 10, 11, 12. And I saw that as a teacher. When gender roles really start to kick in, um, I know this for myself. I know it as a teacher. There was a self-silencing that I started to watch, witness happen to my young 10, 11-year-old, 12-year-old students, the girls in particular. And it was where my big, bright, bold, brash female students really started to self-silence. And it was frightening. And that was where I was like, okay, that's where it begins. And that's where the girls started to read cues from society and boys have different cues that they're told at that age. And PS, it's a disservice to everybody. And it frightened me that basically between that age, nine, 10, 11, 12, maybe until you're 50, you've spent that much of your life trying to be something for other people. Mm. So my goal and advice to my daughter, it's not one specific lesson. It is more of the attitude and the belief and the value system that what you believe, who you are, what you have to offer, it's valuable today, it's valuable tomorrow, it's valuable when you're 25, when you're 35, when you're 45, when you're 55. 
and to live with a fearlessness that society is so strongly trying to strip from you because they're scared of your power, quite frankly. Yes. So I, I was in the marketing world for 10 years and then I I was diagnosed with an illness and then I was pregnant and I said to my mom, I don't think I want to market anymore. I just want to walk dogs. I don't want to talk to anyone. I want to walk dogs for a year and I want to just kind of figure out when did I stop listening to myself? Mm-hmm. I admire so much what you did because you just got to the point where you were done and you got into journalism. Your TED Talk. How did that happen? Uh, it's a great story. Thank you for asking because I was first asked many years ago to do a talk and I was at a stage in my life and in my career where I actually was in that space of uncertainty and fear um, and anxiety and um, just lacking confidence. And I remember when I was approached to do a talk, my first thought was, A, I was petrified, petrified. And then I thought, I have nothing to offer people. I mean, what on earth do I have in my life that I've learned or experienced that I could offer an audience? And I actually declined my first offer to do any kind of speaking for the, you know the TED organization. And it was actually one of the biggest regrets of my life. And it kind of stuck with me for many years. So when um, a lovely lady by the name of Yasmin approached me and she said, hey, I thought of you right away. We're doing this TEDx talk and um, the theme is resilience. The first thing that came to mind was not, oh, yes, this is my chance. My body physically went back to that like other girl, that young woman who was petrified. And I actually was like, oh, no, no, I can't. No, no, I'm not ready again. So I actually had to sit with my discomfort and I said to her, can you give me a few days to think about this? And I did say, truthfully, my schedule was bananas and I knew the kind of work that it would entail. This is not something that you accept lightly. It's something that really you're going to put your heart and soul into, right? And so long story short, I said to her, you got to give me a little while. So a week turned into two weeks, turned into three weeks, turned into four weeks. And finally, she's like, hey, you have to do this and here's why. And she kind of cornered me and said, listen up, this is what I think you can offer. So when I started to ponder the theme resilience more, I thought maybe I can, but not necessarily to focus just on my story because I still think I'm living out my story. But resilience to me right away was my parents. And I thought if I can really ground this in their story and share their amazing story of resilience to an audience and share how that has benefited me as their daughter, maybe there's a lesson there. And so I really was so petrified. I'm not going to lie. I was still so scared. And I said, yes. And I enlisted the help of a very good friend. She's been a speechwriter for the federal government for a long time. And I really respect her. And she has a similar story to mine. And I said, hey, I can't do this alone. Can you mentor me through this? And I'm just going to like hit you with draft after draft after draft. And so it felt like I had a buddy. I had a partner through this. I wasn't going to be alone. And in the end, I was so proud of myself for doing it because I overcame a huge fear for many, many, many years ago. And it's weird how some of those things never leave you. You know, you know, what's crazy. So I I work with this um, 
life success coach, Dr. Lise Janelle, and she does this thing where she muscle tests you and tells you where this thing is stored in your body. And she says that she can see people go back to a time and get the exact same response, shiver, cry. And then she can find that it's like stored somewhere in their subconscious. And she does these things that shock me, but she would say, yeah, you went back there. It was living somewhere in you. Oh, yes. Oh my oh, gosh. Yes. I was right back there. Dr. Lisa Nell. Wow. <laughs> this is very cool. Now, you, you know, your gender neutral clothing line. Um, I bought some pieces for my son, Nicholas, that my daughter, Sophia, will wear after. It. And I like, Thank I love you. the whole, like, how did this happen? So going back to the story of being pregnant, I was probably, I'm going to guess, five or six months pregnant. And I was starting to just go around. I, to be honest, besides shopping for a couple of baby showers here and there, I was not a, a frequenter of kids' clothing stores. So I had started to just sort of peek around and I knew that I was having a girl and I also knew that I really wanted um, the messaging or basically lack of messaging to be the, the message in her clothing. And certainly as a a feminist, I thought this is not going to be a child that is going to just espouse the cultural norms and expectations for girls in our culture. So I I started researching and going into stores and realizing that if you want to distill a culture's belief system and see how far we've actually come or not, When it comes to expectations for genders in particular, just walk into a kid's clothing store, a baby's clothing store, and you realize how far we haven't come. And I say that because when you as an adult or adults are responsible for, for example, clothing a child, you think it's just like you throw on a plain onesie and off you go. And it turns out it's not that. It turns out that our expectations and our anxieties are all thrust upon babies. So therefore, you have a boy's and a girl's side of a baby store, which just think about that for a second, makes zero sense in the world because it's a baby. It needs a onesie and it needs a diaper. Just be warm. (laughs) Right. It doesn't need a onesie that says, you know, pretty like mommy. It doesn't need a onesie that says, you know, future CEO for the boy side or future astronaut or I love trucks. Like that is a parent's choice or a caregiver's choice to put their expectation on a child and to really sit there and go, what in the hell? And you wonder why Hillary didn't win and why there aren't enough female CEOs and why there aren't enough female politicians representing half of the population in government because it starts when they're babies. This is not a mystery. It's really quite clear. We think we've come so far, but if you don't attack it where it begins, which is literally at the beginning of life, it doesn't matter what you're saying to an 18-year-old girl. I mean, the messaging and the indoctrination started when she was born and she had no say in it. So I walked in there and said, well, hell no, this is not going to be what I'm going to do to my daughter. So while I have control, I will exert my own effort, which is actually to do no messaging, which is actually to not say this is your gender. Hmm. She'll decide that for herself. She'll decide when she's at a certain age to make money and buy her own clothes what she wants to wear. But in the meantime, I'm the parent. I'm the adult in the room who's supposed to have taken all of this knowledge and this women's movement 
to decide that my daughter will not be a quote-unquote future princess, for God's sake. So I just found such a lack of clothing to align with that. And so I spoke to a good friend of mine and a really bright business mind, and I said to her, you know what, I'm really disheartened by what's available for kids out there. I will say girls and boys. There's two sides to this coin. But since I have a daughter, it really was. A gender-neutral kids' clothing line is something that I think I can contribute, that I think there's a lot of like-minded parents that feel the same way, um, but still don't want to sacrifice on quality of clothing, ethically made clothing. Um, If you want to buy cheap clothing, which I get financially, some people are in a position that they have to, I get it. But if you are in a position to make different decisions, then it is incumbent on you to know where your clothes are being made, who's making them, how much are they making, all of those things, their working conditions. So like that whole thing came to me and said, gender neutral kids clothing line for ages zero to six. So that's how Mark was born. I love it. I actually love it. Uh, it's, it's funny. Um, some of the things now I think about when I look at my kids are, I hear some of the, the mistaken words being said to them that don't represent me. And I have to think of a kind way to dispel some of the things they're hearing from. Doesn't even- have to be kind. Don't don't worry about that. I know what you're saying, but it doesn't have to be kind. Yeah, like undo it. Undo almost like what the world is saying, you know, Mm -hmm. because my my son loves to dance. And somebody said to him, you shouldn't dance like a girl. And I said, no, Nicholas, come home. Let's put the music on. Whatever you want to dance, let's have a dance party. And I saw him hesitate. And he's he's not even three yet. Mm -hmm. So I love a brand with intention. So what's the website? This is all online. It's all online. We do have retailers uh, for sure, but the quickest and easiest way is online, which is Mark with a Q for Marquesa, markdesigns.com. Perfect. And I know that your family owns Grello Farms. Mm-hmm. Were you, when did you start riding horses? Uh, my dad has a saying and he said the, uh, the son or daughter of a fish must learn how to swim. So obviously when you think about that, you're like, yeah, duh, because it's a fish. It's like, yeah, my father's business that he started uh, was horses. And so when you're born into a, I said this in my TEDx talk, but when you're, when you're born into a family business, usually you're going to be trained in that family business, whether you want to or not is a different story, but you will be. And so I was riding horses probably before I was walking. That's really cool, man. Because <laughs> I, I love, I, I had a funny situation at a farm recently where my husband says I talk to all animals and I was like, you're all so beautiful. And it was like 10 horses. They came <laughs> towards me and I was like, oh, you're coming really close. And then they all turned around and I saw their bums. And I said, I think they just told me conversation over. <laughs> or scratch my butt. Or maybe thank you. They do that. That's how I would have taken it. Oh my God. Next time I'll know. You're like, a nice human. I really think you need to scratch my butt. <laughs> I can't reach back there. Wouldn't that be so funny if my husband showed up and I was scratching the horse's bottoms? He'd yep. be like, she's lost her mind. Wow, exactly. And the horses will be like, that is a smart human. I like her. <laughs> Ooh, okay, so now let me ask you about this, the side of Melissa Grello and everything you do and how busy you are, but what does nobody understand about it? Like none of your friends, none of anybody. What's like the one thing you're like, guys, if you knew this? I think um, particularly since hosting The Social, I think the thing that's difficult for most people to understand is there's been such a blurring of the line between public and private life. And much of that is my doing. I'm not blaming that on anybody. But A, the show to be successful entails that you share 
And sometimes those details are funny and sometimes those details are difficult and you're talking about your personal life. And, you know, you basically, I think, to be an effective host of a talk show like ours, you have to at sometimes be willing to turn yourself inside out. Um, and that's petrifying and scary and makes you feel vulnerable. And you, by doing so, when you share that way, are inviting people in. The challenge, though, is if I'm out with my daughter grocery shopping, I just probably told you on the show yesterday about all these intimate details of being a mother to this daughter, but now you're in public and people will see you, they react to you because thank God they love the show, but um, people have probably, unless you're my husband or my daughter, don't really get how that's a weird place sometimes because I do still, as everybody uh, wants is to carve out a bit of a private life. And so that's hard because I'm putting it out there. Like there's social media, there's the show. And I really, I'm very happy um, that so many people have been touched by the show or connect with my experience on social media. Um, but that's a catch 22. So I think the difficult side is like how without like just holding up in my house, right. Yeah. Or my parents' house. Um, how do I carve out a space that my daughter still feels safe, that she still feels like she has a private life because she's starting to get to an age where she'll be like, is this going on Instagram, mom? And I'm like, what? Oh, my God. Because she? she's five. She's five. Oh, my God. And that's not because she sees me on Instagram. It's because parents at her school, parents of kids in her class, parents of kids at her school have actually come up to her in when I'm there and said, oh, my gosh, Marquez, I saw you on Instagram. And then they'll refer to XYZ on Instagram. And for a five-year-old to hear an adult who's a stranger to them say something about them that they think is personal or private, she kind of just goes, how do you know about that? So I have, as she gets older, I'm going to have to navigate this. Like, parenting's tough to figure out uh, how much of a, a private life I have to protect for me, but especially for her. That's not something people can get easily because I share so I got to figure it out. I, I don't have the answer. I'm trying to figure it out. No, but like, uh, it's it's funny that you say that you have to share because when I started my business, um, I had a business coach say to me, okay, you can't be shy and you can't hide. Can you learn how to take a selfie? And I was like, I don't like selfies. And she's like, no, you have to, you have to put yourself online a bit, share a little bit more about yourself because then you're a mystery and mysteries are not fun. There has to be something about you that's willing to be vulnerable. Even still, when I think about posting a picture of me and Sophia, when I put a happy Thanksgiving message, I kind of cringed because I was like, I don't often put my daughter online, but this is who I am. It's my family. I once had a conversation with a journalist in New York City when my daughter was nursing. And he said, what are those noises? And I said, well, (laughs) we can't talk about those noises. I said, one day I'll explain in an email. But I sent an email after and I said, she's a new baby and I was nursing. He said, oh my God, women do things and men don't even concept. Like we don't. I'm guessing he didn't have kids. He didn't have kids and he was blown away. Like he was speechless. It's just doing what we have to do. Yeah. You mentioned carbon carbon credits on your social account. And maybe you could talk our audience through what carbon credits are. It's, uh, it's, I think some people call it an offset program. Uh, But listen, climate change is, as we know and are understanding more sadly every day, it is an emergency. We are in crisis mode. And so everyone, I hope, is starting to really take hard looks at their lifestyle to see like what 
what are the ways that I can change my lifestyle and those around me to make a, an impact, a positive impact and help our planet. There are some hard truths to understand, which is that, yes, Canada as a, as a country, we are one of the worst emitters, I believe, in the G7, perhaps G20 uh, countries. But this is on a bigger, more industrial level. I mean, it's great that we are starting to get rid of single-use plastics like straws. But you and me using stainless steel straws, it's a drop in the bucket. That's yep. not the priority. We all have to do stuff, and that's important. But when you talk about big ticket items that are really destroying our planet, it is carbon dioxide emissions, full stop. And that is where we have to target, I think, the most of our behavior. Now, that's easy to say, but then you want to go on vacation because Canada in the winter, my opinion, sucks. And I can't handle the cold. So I want to go way somewhere hot. How privileged, right? So I'm going to have to hop on a plane to do so. And so that and, and jet emissions and cars and trucks, transportation, that's one of the huge areas that we have to tackle as a country and as a nation. The other area is agriculture, and that is the way we eat. So two things to do is look at how much meat are you eating? I'm a pescatarian, so I don't eat meat. So this is me trying to be a bit preachy, and I apologize, but... Can you cut back? Uh, nobody's saying everyone needs to go vegan. I'm not vegan. No interest in being vegan, but I haven't had meat since I was 16. That is a health choice, and it is increasingly becoming uh, a conscious choice for the environment as well. Two things is carbon offsets and how do you eat? So I would encourage people for the second one, just is there Are there meals where you can say, well, maybe I don't have to eat meat this meal, or maybe I don't have to eat meat this day, and start there and see what you can do. And that is a huge impact. For a lot of people who do enjoy traveling, it is what can you do if, if you choose to not necessarily cut back on travel, how can you offset the carbon that you are con contributing to or creating when you are taking that airplane ride? So carbon offsets most airlines. It's I wish they would make it easier. But when you book, whether it's online or through an agent, ask or look for it, or even just Google if the airline that you're looking at offers a carbon offset program. And what it does is it, most of them offer a basic calculator and says, where are you flying to and from? It's usually for a round trip. And it will calculate how much carbon dioxide you and your family are putting into the atmosphere for that plane ride. And you can take money and offset that carbon footprint that you're creating by investing in something else that helps to decrease that or make it a net zero contribution. So when I travel now, there's several great programs through big airlines. I often will contribute to programs that do tree planting. So there are so many of them, but uh, let's say you fly Air Canada and maybe they have a partnership with a, with a, a tree planting organization. You can actually calculate how many trees you need to plant and that will offset the carbon footprint that you're creating for that flight. Of course, you can contribute more, which means you're actually in the end, hopefully contributing more oxygen to uh, to planet earth than the carbon dioxide that you're creating i love it i love it i love it because i mean i'm not traveling right now it's going to be a while but last winter uh around the holidays i bought everybody uh bracelets from four ocean do you know yes, that organization yes. 
And then it blew everybody's mind that the bracelet they were wearing was recycled ocean plastic. So if you had a brand new journalist in front of you, what, what words of wisdom would you share? Journalism today means you're a truth seeker at whatever cost. So that's where I would say, know your stuff. Just read and read and read as much as you possibly can. It's, it's beyond just like asking questions and getting answers. It's really understanding context. And that does require you to be a student of the world and understanding world politics and understanding the big issues that drive journalism. You know, wherever you are, you have to be the, the most researched person in the room. You don't have to be the smartest, but get your hands on absolutely everything that you can read and understand Distill it in a way that you can turn around and tell people about it. Get very comfortable at storytelling and get very comfortable, whether it's in front of your mirror, everyone's got a phone, record yourself. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that you can do so that you as a presenter, you're credible, you sound like you know what you're talking about because you do. I know your facts. No, you're, it's not about looking good on camera, for heaven's sake. It's about what do you have between your ears to offer me? Right? Melissa rocks. <laughs> um, do you have any projects that maybe you can't fully talk about, but something's happening for you? Oh, yes. <laughs> I feel like you do. Oh, God, how much can I say? I'm at a stage in my career where, yes, of course, there's so many things I still want to do. But there's a point in one's career when you've attained a certain amount of success that I hope you understand that there should be a shift, which is where I currently am, a shift between success into significance. And there's a real difference between the two for me. Um, I've had a lot of success that I've created for myself and I've uh, really enjoyed the process of creation. But then you start to go, what am I leaving behind though? I mean, what is the legacy what am I doing that is not just me, has made me successful, but is actually significant to the community around me, to the country, to the world at large? That's a very different discussion. So I am working on a project that I think starts to move me into that world of significance where um, it's not so much about me, what I'm doing, my success. It's about giving something that really spurs some kind of action on the part of the listener or the viewer. So um, that's all I can say now. Oh my Hopefully God, that's you'll exciting. invite me back. I, I will totally to say. invite you back. Where can our listeners find you? I mean, I know it's Melissa Grello everywhere. Uh, Melissa Grello everywhere. <laughs> yes. Uh, pretty much most of my handles are at Melissa Grello. Um, my website is melissagrello.com. So that's pretty easy to remember as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us on season two of Superstar PR. Because how cool is this, guys? Keep on shining, (laughs) Melissa. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Superstar PR. New episodes are available every other Friday. And you know, we would love your feedback. So please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to Superstar PR on your favorite streaming service and visit www.nikkiinc.ca to sign up for podcast alerts and notifications. Thank you so much for listening.